0: Periodically, with these other missionaries to different parts of that country. And we would go up north, and I would teach English, and we would do relief work. And we were flying this little Cessna, little two engine Cessna. And it just became a normal part of ministry for me. I got very used to that. And so one day we're, we're flying in this little Cessna, and I'm listening to music, and it's really loud. I don't know if you've been in one of those little two engine prop planes. It's really, really loud. And so I'm, I've got my music cranked up all the way, and I can still barely hear it over the engines. And I'm very sleepy because I get motion sick, and so I pop some Dramamine. And I'm I'm sitting there just kind of very mellow, listening to my music, very very mellow. And all of a sudden, my music got very loud. And I was like, "That's strange. Like, how'd that happen?" And I realized, "Hey, the engines aren't making all that noise anymore." I was like, "Oh, that's kind of nice. You know, that must be like something new that the pilots figured out how to kind of decrease the sound of those, those." And then I realized that he, he the pilot did seem pretty concerned, and he's up there feverishly working on things and. And then after a little bit, our, our plane begins to kind of, like, it's going and then it's just kind of gliding. Like, it doesn't fall like a rock, but it just kind of starts to glide down. And I'm like, you know what? I, I don't think this is part of the plan. I think maybe the engines aren't working. And, and the pilot, he's really, you know, really trying to get these things going. And, and it dawned on me, you know what? I think we're going to crash. And then it dawned on me, I'm probably going to die. And that was a strange thought. I'd never had that before. Uh, and so I I, I was kind of just sitting there, and it's, it's a weird... I don't know if you've ever had that experience. It's, if you haven't, it's hard to describe. I, I was afraid, but it was it was also kind of a, a surreal feeling. And so I'm just sitting there thinking, I'm about to die. I'm thinking, am I ready to die? And I decided, I, I believe I am. I believe I'm ready to die. I believe I'm ready to meet Christ. I've given him my life. I've trusted in him as my savior, my king. But then I began to think... I don't really want to die yet. and I know that's not the Christian answer. I should be like, yeah, I want to go to heaven. But I was thinking of all the things that I wanted still to do. I thought, I want to go to college. I do want to go to college. My year of working as an electrician convinced me that I want to go to college. And uh, I, I hope that I meet someone special there or at some point, and get married, and I hope I have kids, and I want to, I want to go be a pastor, and maybe a missionary someday, and I have all these ideas and these dreams. And it never occurred to me that maybe those things might not happen. It just never dawned on me that I might not live to see those things happen in my life. Now, I knew that people died young. I, my good friend had just died in a car accident, Not that long before. I knew that people died young, but for some reason, I never thought that it would happen to me. It happened to other people, other young people, but it didn't happen to me. I was different somehow. God had a plan on my life. Everybody would tell me that all the time. Oh, God has a plan on your life. So it it just seemed obvious to me that if God had a plan, then I must have some great future ahead. And it never dawned on me that maybe God's plan was for me to live 20 years and then die in a plane accident. And it was a strange, strange feeling. Well, thankfully, the pilot wasn't sitting back and having these, you know, theological uh, reflections like I was. He was doing practical things, like trying to get the, the plane going, and he did, eventually, thankfully. And the engine starts, and we, you know, we pull out. We weren't we were in a steep dive, and we pull out, and, and we get there safely. But that night, as I'm laying in my bed, I'm thinking, wow, you know what? I lived. I made it through that, but I could die tomorrow. Who knows? Or I could live another 90 years and die when I'm really old in my bed. I don't know how much longer I have. Nothing's guaranteed. And so I realize that I need to live every day as if it could be my last, as if I could meet, be meeting Christ today. And that doesn't mean that I shouldn't make plans, I shouldn't have goals and dreams. I still do. But it does mean that I'm not guaranteed any of those things, no matter how special I think I am. And so I need to live every day as if it could be my last and live it for all, with all my heart for Christ. And be ready if he calls me home today. That's how he's called all of us to live. And we see that very clearly in our passage today in Esther chapter 6. So please turn there with me, Esther chapter 6. I know some of you are probably getting tired of hearing the pastors recap the whole story of Esther every, every single week. But I'm going to do it anyway, so just bear with me. Um, The Jews are God's people. They are the descendants of Abraham. They they are in Egypt for a period of roughly four hundred years. They're in slavery there, and so God delivers them from Egypt. He brings His people out of Egypt. He gives them a promised land in Israel, the capital city, of with Jerusalem as its capital, and they live there for at least six hundred years, at least. And during that time, they repeatedly rebel against God, and they follow idols. They worship idols. They reject his standards for their lives. They reject his calling on them to be, a, to be a people who represent him to the world. They reject that for the most part. Occasionally, a good king will, come, will rise up, and then the people will kind of turn back to God for a while. But eventually, they fall away again, and they, they turn back to these idols. And so, God is so patient. I love the song we sang today about God's patience. His heart is to be patient, but after 600 years of this, his patience is done. Okay, time's up. And so... He allows his people to be exiled. The Babylonians come, conquer Jerusalem, take his people into exile, and they live in Babylon. And while they're there for at least 70 years, the Persians attack Babylon. They conquer Babylon. And so now the Persians are are in charge. And the Persian king Cyprus says, hey, Jews, now you can go home. Okay. See you later. It was fun to have you, but it's time to go home. And so some of the Jews do go back, but most of the Jews are like, you know what? We've been here for seventy years. We're comfortable here. We got homes. We got, you know, we got jobs. We got nice retirement packages. We're not, we're not leaving. Okay. We're not going to go back to this third world country with no infrastructure, no plumbing, nothing. We're going to stay here. We're comfortable here. And so most of God's people continue in the exile. They never go home. They continue to live, essentially live in rebellion against God and say, no, God, we're not going back to Jerusalem. We're not going to rebuild your temple. We're, we're comfy right here. And so they continue to live in exile. And so eventually another Persian king, com- king comes up, King Xerxes, and he gets dissatisfied with his wife. And so he looks for another wife, does kind of the Bachelor Persia show, and he, and he checks all these women out, and he decides he likes Esther, who's a Jewish orphan who was raised by her cousin Mordecai, who's a lot older than her. And Mordecai says, Hey Esther, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. And so she doesn't. So she marries King Xerxes It seems like a like a fairy tale story. They they have a big wedding and everything's fantastic until the number two guy in charge of the Persian Empire, Haman, gets in a little spat with Mordecai and and that reminds him that there's this old tribal animosity between his people, the Amalekites, and between the Jews. And so Haman is like, hey, I'm just going to wipe out the Jews. I got the power now. I'm second in charge. I'm going to wipe them out. He convinces the king to let him do that. And so or so Mordecai, he's grieving about this. And so he he sits, sits outside the king's gate and he dresses in like sackcloth and ashes. And he just sits there and he's fasting and he you know and he's putting dust on his hair. And Esther's embarrassed, right? She's like it's like I don't know, some of you girls if Teenagers, maybe, you're like, man, my dad, he just doesn't know how to dress. And it's embarrassing to me. And so you don't really want to be associated with him. But then you do kind of want him to, like, dress a little bit nicer. And so Esther sends out these clothes with her servant. And she's like, the servant's like, hey, can you, like, maybe change your clothes, Mordecai? This is kind of embarrassing for Queen Esther. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. And they're like, well, why? You know, what's wrong with you? And he says, well, you know, the Jews are going to be killed. We're going to be exterminated on December 13th. And he sends the message back to Esther. And she's like, well, what do you want me to do about it? Okay, I'm, I'm a trophy wife. I just sit here, you know, getting beauty treatments all day. What am, what am I going to do? I can't even go see the king. I'm, I'm not even legally allowed to approach him unless he calls for me. He could kill me. And Mordecai sends back a message, powerful message. He says, Esther, what if you were raised up for such a time as this? What if your whole life is building up to this moment? What if not all moments and all, all moments of your life are equal? What if this is your defining moment? This is your divine window. What if you were raised up for such a time as this? And Mordecai's message convicts Esther, and she sends back a message and says, Okay, you fast and pray for me, and I will go to the king, and if I die, I die. But I'm going to give it a shot. She goes. The king welcomes her. He, she invites him to a party. They have a big old party, big spread for him and Haman. But she gets cold feet, can't, can't confront him at that point. And so she says, hey, come back tomorrow. And so the king goes home. He's happy. Haman goes home. He's happy. I, Pastor Dean was saying last week, he's doing, you know, photos on Instagram, like, best day ever, right? You know, me, selfie with me and, the, you know, the king and the queen. And he's having a great time. So they go home. And that's where we pick up now in chapter 6, verse 1. That night, the night of the first banquet after it, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. Some of you think history is really boring. This guy did too, okay? But he's a narcissist, and so he wants to hear his own history in order to put himself to sleep. That's his plan here. So read me my history. It's boring to me, but at least it's mine, and then I'll fall asleep. That's his plan. And it was found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Bithna and Teresh, two of the king's officers who, cons- who guarded the doorway who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. And the reason he asked that is because it is incumbent on his honor to reward people who stick up for him, who defend him, who who turn in a, a potential assassins. And we know that historically because another person who, who tried to assassinate Another person tried to assassinate King Xerxes. Somebody turned him in, just a normal person, and the king made that person a governor of a whole province, right? It's a big deal. This is an Asian culture, and so honor and shame are a big deal, and there's a lot of reciprocity. Somebody does something big for me, I need to reciprocate and do something back for them, and if I don't, it looks bad on me, especially as the king. And so the guy's just reading through, and the king's like, wait, 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 what did we do for Mordecai? Stop. Wait, what did we do? Tell me about how great I am and how I reward people. And the guy is like, uh, uh, nothing has been done for him. His attendants answered. That's a problem, a big problem. And so the king said, who is in the court? So it's late at night, maybe midnight or something king's up, but he's like, hey, go out in the court, see if there's anybody out there that I can talk to about figuring out how to reward Mordecai. Well, it just so happened that now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had erected for him. So Haman, same thing, he goes home, he can't sleep either. And the reason is he's really pumped up about his day with the king and the queen, and on his way home, he sees Mordecai. Oh man, and Mordecai's like, a hey, Haman, I'm not bowing. So I see you. I'm, I'm not bowing, man. And Haman is angry about this. He's like, oh, I hate that Mordecai. Ruined a good day. And somebody won't bow to me. And so he goes home, tells his wife. And his wife's like, what is your problem? Just kill him. Just build a huge pole in our yard, about 75 feet high, and impale him on it. Right? She's a real nice lady. Real, real good plan. And he's like, I love it, babe. That's why I married you. You have all the good ideas. So he's like, okay, so it's late at night, but he doesn't want to delay this. He's like, I want to do it first thing tomorrow morning, but I need the king's permission. So he's like, you know what, it's late, but maybe the king's still awake. Maybe there's a chance that the king is still awake. I'm going to go to the court and see if he's still awake. So he goes to the court, and just as he's getting into the court, the the king's attendance is going out to look for somebody. They meet, and they bring him in. Verse 6, when Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? So the king speaks first before Haman gets a chance. And Haman thought to himself, naturally, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor, and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before the man, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Now you may say, That's a little weird. I mean, who cares about riding a little horse with a, with a king's robe, right? I want to be a governor. But Haman doesn't. He doesn't care about that kind of stuff. He's already the number two man in the, in the empire. He doesn't need more power. And he's fabulously wealthy. He doesn't need more money. But what does he still want? He wants more honor, more glory for himself. I mean, think, think of someone who is just uh, some celebrity who has fabulous wealth, and they have lots of influence. What do they still want? They still want more honor, more glory. They want their name out there. They want people reading headlines about them and looking at photos of them. That's what they want, and that's what Haman wants. More of that. He wants to be a, a gr- even greater celebrity. Verse 10, "'Go at once,' the king commanded Haman. "'Get the robe and the horse and do just what you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended.'" Imagine Haman's face here. Now, he can't, like, frown because this is the king talking to him. And so he's like, oh, you know, trying to keep the, the smile on. But that whole light in his eyes is just gone. Like, he's, you know, he's thinking inside, like, dang it. So Haman got the robe and the horse. And he robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai retir- returned to the king's gate. But Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Why does she say that? That's kind of strange. I mean, he still has a plan to kill Mordecai. He can still do it. I think what she's saying here in the context of this culture is in, this culture believes that there's lots of different gods, and every people group has a god, and there's, there's lots of gods. And so remember when Haman made a plan to kill the Jew, he cast those lots to make sure that, that he picked the right day when the gods would be helping him, right? The spirits would be on his side. But what his wife is saying is, oh man, Haman, the God of the Jews is too powerful for you. You just messed with, Mo- you, you're, you're planning to kill Mordecai, But now your downfall has started before him, and because he's Jewish, you can't stand. And I think that's what she has in mind here. The fates are against you, Mordecai. The God of the Jews is—or Haman—the God of the Jews is too strong for you. You cannot stand against him. Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Now, we've got to keep moving here, but a couple quick points about this section— Chapter 6, the first point is that God is in control. I hope it's obvious to you as you read this. God is in control. Proverbs says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and the Lord directs it like a water course, like a river. It's that easy for God. And you may say, How does God do that with humans having free will? How can we be responsible if God's in control? Well, that's a whole long discussion we could have, and I'd love to have it, but not right now. However, in this story, it's very clear that God determines the circumstances, and he knows exactly how these people will freely choose to respond. It's not really that hard for God. And through a series of small, seemingly random events, God's plan is accomplished. Xerxes forgets to reward Mordecai the first time. Part of God's plan. God works it out. Then he has a sleepless night. I wonder why. God keeps him awake. And he, he asks for his histories to be read, which he thinks will put him to sleep, but they don't. And he hears about and all these little events which God has planned. And he knows exactly how the king's going to act. And it's the same with Haman. God knows exactly how Haman will respond to the events that he faces. God is in control. He's orchestrating, orchestrating all of this. God is in control of this story, and he's in control of our story as well. The second thing I want you to see here is that grief does not equal repentance. Haman is grieving, but he is not repenting. He's grieving for himself and for his own hurt pride, but he is not repenting. He's not saying to the God of the Jews, okay, God of the Jews, you win. I've blown it. I I can see that you're stronger than me. I can see that my downfall has started. God of the Jews, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, I can't earn your forgiveness, but but here's my life. I will worship you from now on. Please have mercy on me. He doesn't say any of that. He just grieves over his own hurt. Pride. We've got to be so careful when we do something, when we, the, our own choices cause us to suffer negative consequences, it's natural to grieve that. And that's fine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're repenting. Repentance means we come before God and we say, God, I've rejected your authority. I've sought my own will, my own glory. I've worshiped other idols that I've set up in my life. And now my only hope is Christ, his forgiveness, his leadership, his direction in my life. We need to be careful not simply to grieve, but also to repent. All right, go on. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine on that second day... The king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And I want to pause there because I I just want to make sure you know that this is the most important moment of Esther's life. This is her most important moment. She is about, in a sense, she is about to go up to to that wanted poster that says, Wanted, Jews, Condemned to Death. She's about to go up to that and sign her name right up there at the top. say, hey, I'm one of these guys. If you're going to kill the Jews, all the other Jews are going to have to kill me too. She didn't have to do that. Nobody knew she was a Jew except Mordecai, apparently. She didn't have to. She could have stayed comfortable, but she makes a radical decision that she could lose everything for. She could be killed for this. And we tend to kind of gloss over that because we know the end of the story, but Esther doesn't. She doesn't know the end of the story. There's no guarantees here that her story is a happy ending. And I just draw that out because there are people today in our world, Christians, who are taking a stand for their faith and they're saying, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, I trust in Jesus, and they're not getting a happy ending from an earthly standpoint. They're being killed, their families are being sold into slavery. There are no earthly guarantees that if you do the right thing, it all ends up happily ever after. And Esther doesn't know that, there's a, that her life is going to end up well, but she says, I'm going to make a stand, I'm going to do what's right. And I think the reason she did that was because Mordecai had sent that message and said, Esther, what if you were born for such a time as this? And I think she looked at her life and said, why am I here? Why am I here? It's not just for my own happiness. What, what, what is the reason God might have put me here? And she realizes it's probably to save the Jews. And I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Why am I here? Why am I here? Not just for my own happiness. What are the pressing issues of my time? The needs, the pressing needs in the world right now. And how has God uniquely placed me to minister to those needs? To the pressing issues of my time. And so Esther recognizes that. But she's also wise. She doesn't have a death wish. She really wants to be able to talk to the king in a way that he's going to listen to her and not kill her. And that's going to be tricky because, remember, Haman is the king's friend. They're buddies. They're, they're old drinking buddies. And Haman's his, his, his chief advisor. And so they've made a plan together to kill the Jews. And so how can Esther condemn Haman without implicating the king, without, without making him look face, lose face? It's going to be tricky. So, and I, and I, here's, here's the application for us. How do you bring up a sensitive issue that needs to be addressed with someone that you don't want to offend? Because that's, a, that's the situation that Esther's in here. How do you bring up a sensitive issue? It needs to be addressed, but you don't want to offend this person. It could be a parent. It could be a boss. It could even be a spouse. I don't want to offend my spouse. right? How do you do it? I think we'd be wise to look at what Esther says here. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Two quick points. First, she's respectful and polite. Think about how hard this might have been for her. Her husband just agreed to annihilate her people. Not a real good move as a husband. Like, I'm going to kill my in-laws. Not a good idea. He just agreed to annihilate her people, her family. He's a drunkard who sleeps with other women. He, spends, he never spends time with her. It's been over a month since they've been together. He's not a respectable husband. He's not a good man in any sense. And it would have been very natural for her to treat him with contempt. She could have said, look, Xerxes, you drunken loser. Right? Sleeping with a different woman every night, you never have time for me, but you always have time to hang out with that scumbag friend Haman. And now you've agreed to kill my family. I hate you. I wish we never gotten married. She could have said that. And then she would have been killed. (laughs) It would not have opened up the king's heart and made him receptive to her message. And I know it's funny, but some of you treat your spouse or your boss or your parent with contempt. You think of all the mistakes that person has made and how badly that person has hurt you, and you think that you have every right to be mean and rude to them and to treat them with contempt, and maybe from a human perspective you do. But that behavior will only alienate the relationship even more. It will get you divorced. It will get you fired. It will not create positive change, only more pain. And some of you need to recognize that, yes, your spouse or your parent or your boss has done some really bad things to hurt you, but now it's your bitterness and your pride that are preventing reconciliation. So first, Esther is respectful. Second, Esther describes the problem before accusing the person. Okay, instead of accusing the king right away. Or instead of accusing Haman, right away she describes the problem. This is it. My people are going to get killed. I'm going to get killed because I'm one of them. And then she asks the king to do something about it. Help us, please. And it works. The king is, he's moved. He hears her respectful plea and he's moved with compassion and outrage over her injustice. Verse 5. King Xerxes asks Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And in English, this looks like just a natural sentence, but in the Hebrew, it's like he's stuttering. It's like machine gun fire. Where the man is he? I mean, that's really how it comes across. He is angry. He is really, really upset here. Verse 6, Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Now, if you think it's strange that the king went out to the garden, I think there's a reason. He's angry. He's really angry, and he's angry at Haman, but he's not quite sure what to do next, because he and Haman together made that law. And in Persia, a king cannot change a law. Once a law is made by the king, the king cannot take back his word. It is, it is unchangeable. You cannot break that law. And so he didn't know that Esther was Jewish, and he made this law with Haman, and now he wants to—he he can't just cross it out and say, okay, um, you know, I, I need a mulligan on that one. Like, he can't do that. He's, the law is the law. And he can't really punish Haman without implicating himself. He would look guilty in, in the process. And then Haman stays behind, so the king goes out to think, what am I going to do? And Haman stays behind, and Haman, he's in trouble here, big trouble. And he makes it worse because he stays behind. Now, in Persia, there's a law that no man is allowed to be with one of the king's women, his queen or his harem, without the king around. Right, so if the king's woman is here, you, you can't be here unless you're a eunuch. And you don't quite count on this, in this culture. Okay? So no man can be with one of the king's women. So hey, here's Haman. The king just left, and he's like, "Oh, what do I do?" Right? Here's me and the queen. Does he go out in the garden with the angry king? Not a good, not a good move, man. The king needs some space. But does he leave and go out into the courtyard or leave the palace? Well, that that could make him look even more guilty. It could make him look like he's fleeing, and it won't give him a chance to defend himself. And so he's like, ur, ur, "I guess I'll break the law and just plead with Esther for mercy." Verse eight. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall. Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, "Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house?" Now, let me just say, if 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 there's a woman lying on your couch, your wife, your girlfriend, she's lying on the couch. Bad move to like try to make her scoot over, right? You're like, hey, I need to sit. I need to sit on this couch. Scoot over. No, women women need their space, right? Uh, Unless you're prepared to give a back rub as kind of a reward or you know a little little return there. But it's a really bad move to make a woman scoot over she's the queen, okay? And, and her husband is, is kind of off in the garden, really angry. Bad move. And here, Haman, the idea is not only does he make, kind of make her scoot over, he kind of falls on her feet. And so he's so worked up. And this, this is a bad move because there's a, another Persian law. There's a lot of Persian laws related to the king and his women. So there's another Persian law that uh, even in the king's presence, an, another man cannot touch one of the king's harem. You can't come within seven steps of one of the king's harem. But Haman, he's, he's emotional, he's not thinking clearly, and he's pleading with Esther for mercy, and apparently she's not responding. And so he throws himself on the couch. Oh, Esther, please. He's grabbing her feet. Please let me go. It's funny that he's upset that Mordecai won't bow to him, but he's essentially bowing to Esther. And as he's doing that, the king comes in, and now the king has a basis for executing Haman. He may have been trying to figure that out before, but now it's clear. Hey, Haman just touched my woman. He's going down. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So the king comes in, sees Haman, fawning over his wife, says, you're going down, dude. You don't touch my wife. And then the eunuch says, oh, yeah, he, he just built this huge, huge pole for Mordecai. And he's like, oh, okay, fine. That's, that, that's it. Hang him on it. And in one day, in one moment, two huge reversals take place. The Jewish people who were hopelessly condemned, they did not have a human hope. For salvation. They are condemned to death, to destruction. They are saved. And one day they are saved because Esther interceded for them. Esther went to the king on their behalf. And so there's a turnaround, and now the Jews are saved. But second, Haman, the most power the second most powerful man in the world, with seemingly everything going right in his life, finds himself condemned and impaled on a pole in his own yard, bleeding and shrieking. And dying. And I don't think Haman was ready to die. He wasn't expecting it. He was in the prime of his life. Everything was going according to plan. He had every human resource imaginable. Things looked great until his time was up. And God said, you're done. And some of you, I would say, are in the same place as Haman. You're not second most powerful person in the world, but you're young and healthy and life is going well. And when you hear a pastor talk about judgment and death, it just sounds kind of archaic and weird and maybe intolerant. And you're tempted to dismiss it outright, except you know in the back of your mind that you too will die someday. And you hear about people dying all the time. It's constantly on the news. You can't ignore it. Maybe you try not to think about it, but the thought comes back, Every now and again when it's not expected, maybe you're driving down the road, a friend in a friend's car down the freeway, 85, 90 miles an hour, and your friend maybe isn't the best driver. They keep looking back and talking to you, and there's a car on this side, and you're in the, you're in the, the, the whatever, you're right by the embankment there, and, and you just think, man, all it would take is just that car moving over and my friend moving over, and we'd bump and we'd flip, and I'd go in the other lane and probably be dead. I had that thought a couple weeks ago when Dean was driving me. seriously though you're not sure you think about this you have those moments maybe just when you're lying at home some nights and so you hope maybe there's nothing after death or maybe you'll go to a better place but you're not sure and it scares you and it should because there's a king who you have rebelled against and whose anger burns against you and there is an evil enemy who has you in his power and who plans on tormenting you when you die. And it should make you shudder because it's worse than a horror movie. But the good news is that you are still alive. And while you are alive, there is hope. There is hope. And that hope is found in Jesus Christ because the story of Esther is the story of the good news. It's not just an interesting historical story from the Old Testament it's the gospel in the Old Testaments and you can see this in your notes if you want to look or you can listen to me but one thing we see the first thing we see in Esther right off the bat is that God seems distant you can't escape it you open Esther and you just start reading and you don't see any mention of God the whole book God seems distant. That's because the Jews have rebelled against him. They are in exile, and they are still in exile. They have not returned to his kingdom. They have not accepted his invitation of salvation. They're living in exile, and so God seems far away. And the gospel tells us that God, it seems far away. He seems distant to us because humanity has rebelled against him as our creator and our rightful king. And so he has condemned all rebels, all of us, to exile from his kingdom. And if we die in that state, we remain exiled forever. Another theme of Esther is that the Jews are under the power of an evil tyrant who is bent on their destruction. They've traded the authority of God, the good authority of God. They've said, we don't want to live under your authority. And so now they've come under the authority of a tyrant. And the gospel says that Because we, as humans, have rejected God's authority and we've become alienated from Him, we've now come under the power of a demonic tyrant who's bent on our destruction. A third theme of Esther is that God raised up Esther. As a mediator between the Jews and the king, for such a time as this, God raised her up. And she is uniquely placed because she is Jewish. She understands the needs of the Jewish people. She identifies with them. She understands their suffering and their plight. But because she is royalty, she's the queen. She can go before the king and be welcomed into his presence. And she can intercede for the Jewish people. And the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ is our mediator. Because he is human, he understands our plight. He identifies with us. He cares about us. But because he is God, he's divine, he can go before God the Father and intercede on our behalf. We cannot approach God in ourselves. A Jewish person off the street could not have gone into the throne before the throne of Xerxes. But Esther could, and Jesus could. And then the main theme of Esther and the main theme of the gospel is that Esther was able to bring about salvation for her people. She was able to convince the king to save them. And the central message of the gospel is that Jesus saves his people. He has brought about pardon for all who renounce their rebellion and who align themselves with him. See in the story of Esther, the Persian law cannot be changed. The king can't cancel his law. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. It's written in stone. And in the gospel, God can't change his moral law because it's a reflection of his very nature. He hates evil. He loves good. But because Jesus loves us, he came. He took our condemnation. The king came and took the punishment for the rebellion of his own subjects. And therefore, those who join with Jesus are forgiven and they can enter God's kingdom forever. The final theme of Esther is that Haman got what he deserved. He got what he deserved. didn't matter how rich he was. When the judgment came for him, his riches, his power, his influence, his resources couldn't save him. And the gospel teaches that Satan and that all who oppose God will flourish for a time, but there will come a day when the king will judge them and they will experience his wrath. But there is still time to escape that wrath. The good news is that if we repent, if we renounce our rebellion against the king, and if we align ourselves with Jesus, we believe in him as our savior and as our king, the one who died for our sins and the one who is the rightful king and lord of our lives. If we do that, we will be saved. You can do it right now. It's nothing complicated. You don't have to go out and grovel and whip yourself or do anything fancy for God. Just turn to him. Renounce your rebellion. Accept his rightful kingship over your life and you can do that right now. Let's pray. Lord, I realize that there may be people here today who have not who have not thought carefully about the fact that they will die and it will come it could come anytime could very possibly come unexpectedly. And Lord, I pray that they, as they've been listening, that your spirit has been working in their hearts. And now, Lord, I just want to give some time to anyone who wants to make that commitment and just pray to you and say, Jesus, be my savior, be my king. That's all it takes. And so, Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing today in the hearts of people here. We thank you that you loved us enough to come to die for us, to let us spend eternity with you. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Dave. You continue to uh, challenge us.